Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1? It's page 1092 in the uh, Pew Bibles. Same with just been standing. We'll stay seated for the reading of, of God's Word. Acts chapter 1, we're going to read the first 14 verses of Dr. Luke's second book of the New Testament. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The death and resurrection of Jesus obviously changed everything forever we were thinking about that this morning and for the original disciples the post-resurrection period just before Jesus returned to the fuller presence of God it must have been incredible and Luke tells us that for 40 days which we know from elsewhere in scripture is a significant time frame but for 40 days Jesus instructs and speaks into the lives of his disciples, which must have been extraordinary. Given what has just happened, there's the torture, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, the unbearable sense of loss on Saturday, and then the elation as news filtered through that Jesus had in fact come back to life on the Sunday. Given all of that, the disciples' heads must have been spinning. And therefore, the need, not only for, as verse 3 says, not only for convincing proofs that Jesus was in fact alive, because I'm sure at times they wondered, was this really happening? But as well as that, the need for instruction and advice from Jesus on what do we do next, Jesus? Where do we go from here? The need for that was essential. And so for almost six weeks... Jesus communicates important information to his friends and followers. But I love verse 6. 
Because even after this master class, the disciples still had questions. Even in light of so much teaching from the master himself, the disciples had a query. And that's good to know because questions, it seems, are inevitable when it comes to following Jesus. And I'm sure there are many here this evening who have questions. But the one that they ask here and now is at one level not a great one. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And you can almost sense the disappointment as Jesus has to gently but effectively rebuke his followers. Look at verse 2. It says that for 40 days Jesus had spoken to them about what? About the kingdom of God. And here in verse 6 their question concerns the kingdom of Israel. They hadn't quite got it. Here they were thinking in political and parochial terms, whereas Jesus has been talking about a kingdom that's much more dynamic, much more influential, much more exciting, and definitely far-reaching. But let's not be too hard on the disciples, because their question was understandable. Because they were effectively saying, Jesus, when are you going to set things right? And for them, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel was the right thing that they were expecting to happen. And so Jesus had to tell them that it's not for them to know. It's not their concern. And when you think about it, when I was thinking about it, we often ask a similar question. God, when are you going to set things right again, once and for all? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. When, God? When are you going to set things right again? And 2,000 years later, the reply is still the same. It's not for you to know, David. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And although that answer may frustrate us at times, the fact is there are some questions, as the poet says, you just have to learn to live with. You know, wanting to know God's timetable regarding future events has clearly always been a preoccupation with Christian disciples. And yet, despite this explicit command and recommendation, which appears elsewhere in Scripture, there are still some Christians preoccupied with date-setting predictions and inappropriate speculation regarding what will happen and when. Do you know, that doesn't mean we should never consider our future hope. But there's a world of difference between expectation, which is entirely appropriate, and fascination, which is generally unhelpful. And so Jesus tells his first disciples and every subsequent follower to leave all issues of timing with the Father. Because as verse 11 says, the only thing you need to know, Jesus is coming back. That's what you need to know. So get ready for it, but don't get sidetracked into trying to predict when it's going to happen. But there's another really interesting aspect to their question and how Jesus responds because they ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And as Jesus answers, he doesn't just sound a word of caution about predicting the timing. He goes on to make it very clear that actually from here on in, it's over to them to carry on his ministry in the world. That empowered by God the Holy Spirit, they, the disciples, have a key role to play. They are now going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, this is a partnership. And I love how Archbishop Desmond Tutu paraphrases St. Augustine of Hippo regarding the mission of the church. By himself, God won't. By ourselves, we can't. But together with God, we can. I love that. And Acts 1 verse 8 is such an important verse because here is their commission and ours regarding Christian living in the aftermath of the first Easter and in the aftermath of Jesus' return to heaven. Here is what all Christians are called to do in the present. To be Christ witnesses in all these places, which includes where you are right now. It includes where you are right now. That as you live and as you breathe and work and socialize and go about your daily life, you are to speak of Jesus. You are to be the fragrance of Jesus. And you are to point people to Jesus. And in this place on earth where Jesus left his footprints, he commissions us to leave our footprints that direct people to him. That as people look at us, listen to us, as they observe our lives, as they watch how we relate to one another, that somehow as his witnesses, they are drawn to him. It was the late uh, Leslie Newbegin who said, that the local congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. In other words, if you want to know what Jesus is like, look at us. Look at us, because we are now his witnesses. And I find that massively challenging. And yet it captures the commission, our commission of Acts 1, verse 8. Now, of course, in and of ourselves... This would be impossible. In and of ourselves, it would be impossible to be Christ's witnesses. And therefore, the first half of verse 8 makes all the difference. And it actually allows us to dream of what is possible. You will receive power. And emphasis is on the receive. It's going to be something you're going to be given. It's a gift. Something you don't currently have, but it's on its way. But where is it coming from? How are they going to receive it? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now before Jesus had died, he told his disciples and made it very clear that, listen, one day I'm going to leave you. But he had always promised, and we read about this in John chapter 14, he had always promised that the Father would send them, would give them another advocate. Another encourager, another comforter, another counsellor. They wouldn't be left on their own as orphans is how John puts it. And that this Holy Spirit who was going to be with them and in them, this Holy Spirit would teach the disciples, would teach you and remind you everything that I have told you. And here and now in Acts 1, as Jesus prepares to go, he tells them, see in a few days' time, that promise is going to become a reality. The same spirit that came on me, that anointed me, is about to come on you. And look up at verse 2, because it actually says that Jesus had instructed the apostles through the Holy Spirit. And that's vital for us to know, that Jesus knew the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. 
And for his followers, he knew, you know something, see if you're going to fulfill this commission, see if you're going to be my witnesses, then you're going to need to know and experience the same power and presence in your lives as well. Because for Christian living and ministry, the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. You see, and what I'm about to say is going to sound quite controversial and provocative, Jesus is not enough. And before somebody, like Roy, drags me off stage, here's what I mean by that statement. In terms of our salvation, Jesus is completely adequate. As a result of his death and sacrifice and resurrection, liberation, rescue, new life and forgiveness are available and possible. We believe faith alone in Christ, faith alone in Christ alone. But you see, when it comes to living the Christian life in light of that, when it comes to actually walking as Jesus walked, when it comes to fulfilling our calling and mission, the church's mission to be his witnesses here, there, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus is not enough. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And that, for me, is the explicit teaching of Acts chapter 1. Even though the disciples had spent 40 days listening to personal instruction given to them by Jesus himself, it's not enough. They needed to wait to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to live out this teaching, in order to live out the way of Jesus. They had the facts. They had the intellectual knowledge. Now they needed to experience the power. And what that says or reveals is that whenever it comes to the Christian faith, the combination of the objective and the subjective are important. And in Acts 1, you see this fusion. Jesus gave the disciples, to quote verse 3, Many convincing proofs that he was alive. Christianity is based on objective facts. But it's not enough. The disciples also needed a subjective experience of the Spirit in order to be powerful witnesses to those facts. Head and heart. Mind and emotions. See, Jesus knew that what he was commissioning his disciples to do was beyond their own ability. That they couldn't accomplish this in their own strength. Even armed with his teaching and instruction. That they needed power from outside of themselves. They needed the Holy Spirit to come on them. And for us today this remains an important dimension of Christian life and ministry. We have no power on our own. Absolutely none whatsoever. We cannot be effective witnesses and fulfill this commission without the Holy Spirit. We can try to rely on our own efforts and programs and projects. We can come up with great ideas and initiatives. But unless we and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we or they may not accomplish very much of any eternal significance. And David Platt, who leads a large church in the States, has written a book called Radical, which the elders have been reading together recently, and it's this comment that really stood out for me. I am frightened, he says, by the reality that the church I lead can carry on most of our activities smoothly, efficiently, even successfully, never realizing that the Holy Spirit of God is virtually absent from the picture. 
And you know, for any church, and church leader, myself included, or any Christian, that is a disturbing possibility. And Ajit Fernando, who is director or was director of Youth for Christ for many years, has written a brilliant commentary on Acts. And he puts, says this, someone once said that 95% of what happens in evangelical churches could be done without the Holy Spirit. Is that true? Is there a danger that we as a church could reach a place where we organize services, run programs, teach kids, lead groups, deliver sermons, and do church in our own strength? I personally feel it is a very real danger. You can just become competent at doing something. You can just become able to do certain things when it comes to church. But are we really, honestly, relying on God the Holy Spirit to empower us? And if it's remotely possible that that's the case, then it's so important that we need to keep returning to and relying on our power source. David Platt finishes that section of Radical with this thought. The reality is that the church I lead can accomplish more during the next month in the power of God's Spirit than we can in the next 100 years apart from his provision. His power is superior to ours, so why do we not desperately seek it? It's a fair comment, it's a great question, but how do we seek it? How do we ensure we are drawing from our power source? Do you know, as a result of Pentecost, as a result of Acts chapter 2, which we're not going to look at this evening, the Holy Spirit has come on us. He is here. He is available. He is present. Every Christian has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 clarifies that. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. The Holy Spirit, as a result of Pentecost, has come on the church, has come on us. The question is, how do we ensure we remain plugged in, dependent, energized, connected, empowered, whatever word you want to use? And for me, the example here in X1 of the disciples is worth embracing. What do they do? Two things. They wait and they pray. Verses 4 and 14. Now I know there is a uniqueness to their context and their circumstances. But the reason why I believe these remain relevant disciplines is because waiting and praying forces us, reminds us to recognize our dependence and need of the power of the Spirit to be working in and through our lives. See, unless I take time to wait on God and take time to pray, then do you know what I'm in danger of doing? Just getting on with the job. Just preparing things, doing things in and of my own strength because I haven't spent time waiting and praying. And waiting and praying are tough disciplines. They really are. Particularly in this day and age, We're busy people. And stopping doesn't come naturally to us. And even stopping to pray, like really seek God's face in prayer, 
is something that I think many of us find difficult. But it's the practice of these disciplines that ensure we don't end up witnessing living and ministering in our own strength. And so if you sense a lack of power, and I'll be really honest with you, I so often do, then can I encourage you to make and take time to just wait and pray. And after the promise and the commission, Jesus says, according to verse 9, I'm nearly done. Jesus says, according to verse 9, taken up before their very eyes, which must have been an amazing spectacle. And it's details that, like this that leave many people skeptical about the Bible, skeptical about the reality of Jesus and about events like the ascension, because real people don't just float away like helium balloons. How can we, as rational human beings, honestly believe that? How do you make sense of that? But let's not forget, and this may sound like a complete cop-out, but let's not forget, it's not our job, nor is it my desire to take the Bible's mysterious stories and make sense of them. It's not what I'm asked to do. Not asked to get rid of the strangeness or the wildness or the unpredictability of God. If a story is mysterious, which the ascension of Jesus Christ is, then we as the church need to practice being mystified. And the disciples clearly were. And as they stand staring up into space, suddenly two men in white appear. And they ask a question. They're probably two angels, and so the mystery intensifies. Why do you stand here looking up into the sky, they ask. This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And I can wonder, how long would the disciples have stood there, rooted to the spot, if those angels hadn't appeared? Just standing, looking, waiting. Do you know, it was time to move on. It was time to make their way to Jerusalem, time to believe the promises, time to wait and pray, time to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, time to become effective witnesses of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And that is exactly what they did. And that is exactly what we must do. And as I've said, the specifics of their situation were unique and unrepeatable. But the same Spirit of Christ now anoints us. It's the same Spirit of Christ who lives with us and in us as people who have been born again of the Spirit and God. And therefore you can be, we can be Christ's witnesses. We can point people to Jesus. We can make a difference. We can fulfill the final words of Jesus to us. Christ's final command must be our first concern. And therefore as we leave this place this evening, having spent a weekend remembering what Jesus accomplished for us, Let's be witnesses of his life and of his teaching, of his death and his resurrection. But let's never forget it is only possible via the promised presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if we have somehow lost the power to witness, if we have somehow lost the ability to point people to Jesus, 
And I, you know, I, as I reflect on, on things like that and think about things like that, and really take a step back and say, how many people have I actually pointed to Jesus recently? In my words, in my actions, in my behavior, in my attitude. And so if I have lost the power to do that, or maybe I've begun to minister in my own strength, then the best thing I can do is to wait and to pray for a renewed awareness and filling of the Spirit of God in my life. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit. Come to us in this place and at this time. Come to us when we sit in silence. And come to us when we are moving far too fast. Holy Spirit, surprise us, revive us, and shape us into the body of Christ in order that we will be his witnesses right where we are now. Amen.